Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22. We've, uh, this will be the second out of three weeks that we are in this passage, assuming that next week I do not get too excited and spend too much time um, on part of it. But, but this week we have uh, chapter 20, I mean, chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, and we are focusing in on uh, two types of people this week, what it means to be at peace with uh, people who are just in the body, people, and people who do evil. Um, so we're, we're focusing in on those two groups. There are four, kind of four sections mentioned here. Uh, that we see about being at peace, but the exhortation is to be at peace with each other. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, and then we'll ask these questions. So we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, and see to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to please and, and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, last week, we dealt primarily with leaders. There are four, I told you there's four groups mentioned here. There's first in verses 12 through 13, leaders. Then in verses, what we're talking about today, the brothers among us, that's us. And then people who do evil, and then ourselves. And then there's a last addendum added, which is the spirit and the spiritual realm. So we've got these, really, it's, I guess it's five groups if you're going to include the last one as a group. But you've got five different groups of people and then spiritual things at the very end of this. So, or four different groups of people and then spiritual things at the very end of this. So last week we talked about leaders and leadership. And uh, that was a difficult sermon, so I'm not going to rehash it. It was difficult for me to give. It wasn't necessarily difficult for you here, um, but it was, uh, it was hard for me to give, so I'm not going to rehash everything. I'm just going to tell you that you can go listen to that, and it's online, and the, uh, but there's a way you're supposed to respond to leaders, and that's, uh, that's in that passage. And then in verse, uh, at the end of verse 13, you've got this, this uh, imperative instruction. Be at peace among yourselves. And everything in this portion deals with peace. Everything from 12 to 22 deals with living at peace. In particular, peace among us, among each other. Now, this is a delightful thing to talk about in the American church. In general, the American church has not been a bastion of peace. Just laid cards out on the table. Um, we have not been known as a peaceful place, we have been known, and I'm saying we, as in the American church at large, has not been known as a place of peace. 
Um, and it should be. Let's just, it should be. This is not good that we have not been done that way. Now, and I'm not saying not every, this isn't every single location. In general, though, what are the jokes that are made about the American church? They will argue for four days about changing a light bulb, but won't walk across the street. Right? Like that's, that's the, that, those are the jokes that we get. We'll spend four days arguing about a light bulb because my grandmother put in that light bulb. How dare you change that light bulb? And uh, the, or, but they won't walk across the street to meet the person that is their neighbor. Or they've got so many rules that they can't have any, they can't relax. They're so uptight about everything. Right? These are the things that have happened. And nowadays it's even, it's, it's even more bizarre. The, Lack of peace stems from all over. So we've got this very interesting reputation. And I'm being polite in calling it interesting. It's a very difficult reputation. And so when we talk about being at peace, the first question we ask is, how do we be at peace among yourself? And that's what this passage is answering. The first thing was to treat your leaders correctly. Um, And I would add a couple things of how you be at peace with one another and with your leaders. So we talked last week about your leaders and and being at peace with them. This this week we're going to talk about each other. But just in general, the Bible gives us some admonitions as to how to live as people of peace. And one of them is found in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up. That it may give grace to the listeners. So let me read that to you again. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up, that it may give grace to the listeners. I wanted to to bring this up this morning, just to say this, because I've been in a lot of different churches and a lot of different communities of faith, not just churches, but also just communities of faith. And one of the key things that will ruin a community of faith is misplaced and poorly worked language. And I don't mean like structure of sentence. I mean gossip, slander, talking about each other uh, without addressing one another in love, cutting down, tearing each other down. Um, In our culture, there's this, uh, this need among a lot of men to ingest tear each other down Uh, to to make statements that we think are funny that are actually offensive and we take pride in this in our culture for some reason men will take pride in this where they insult each other and then they'll both laugh and giggle don't worry it's not going to explode there's just something going on with the ac just bear with it so the everybody was like what's going it's not don't worry it's fine it was doing it last night while i was here too the so we have this incredible weird cultural phenomenon where men cut each other down and we think it's okay. And it's not. I want you to think about the fact that it's not. These men go home hardened and upset and hurt and then they take it out on their wives and their family and then they come to us for counseling. And I say us, like the whole church. They come to us to talk about, well, I have this issue with my husband. You you boil it down and you find out, well, the guy has nobody speaking joyful and good and wholesome and holy things into their lives. And what's the contrast? When you see somebody who lifts you up, don't you want to be around them all the time? When you show up and they're like, you are fantastic. You're like, yes, I am. 
And then you want to be around them all the time. You know, or the guy that's always like, you know what you're really good at? And then they tell you what you're really good at? That guy? Oh, man, I want to be around that guy all the time. Right? That's because he's doing Ephesians 4.29. He's talking about building each other up. One of the things that will cut the legs out from a ministry immediately, in particular with students and children, one of the things that will cut the legs out from that immediately is when parents fuss about the youth ministry or the student ministry or the children's ministry at home in front of the kids. And then the kids come and they disrespect their youth pastor or their, or their teaching whatever, Sunday school teachers or, or whatever. They disrespect them or they're rude to them or they don't want to listen to them. And then they go home and the parents are like, well, the youth ministry is just not getting this done. And you're like, no, you have spoiled the youth ministry by your attitude towards the leaders. And that is, that is, that I've seen it happen a thousand times. Now I can say that here at Sovereign Grace because we don't have a youth ministry and we don't have a children's ministry so none of you can feel guilty, right? This is, this is fantastic, right? But, but we want to be a congregation of people who by our speech uplift each other. Ephesians 4, 29. We also want to be a congregation that serves one another. Galatians 5, 13, and 14. By love, he admonishes you, by love, serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. We are to love one another in service to one another. And that means you... You go out of your way to take care of the other person's need. What does it say in Philippians? Consider the other better than you. Consider Honor the other person above yourself in Romans chapter 13. Again, honor the other above yourself in Romans 12. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor and serving one another. So these are two ways that we keep peace. Two of the ways that we keep peace. One is by your speech Two is by service. And then three is in your own thoughts. Three is in your own thoughts. Listen to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then he says in verse 9, what you have seen in me practice. What you've seen in me practice. And as a leader, I hope that you see me thinking about beautiful, honorable, just things and putting those things into my head. I hope that you see me exemplifying that. But I also need you to understand that part of being at peace with one another is filling yourself with whatever is good, whatever is just, whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Filling yourself with those things so that you would be at peace with each other. So just as we think about what it means to be at peace, I wanted to put those three things before you. That we need to be at peace purposefully handling our mouths, purposefully handling our hands, and purposefully handling our hearts. Our hearts and minds. So consider the exhortation to be at peace. And I just want some some cautions to be put in place and some obstacles uh, that are some warnings and some obstacles of peace. These are just some cautions from a friend, a pastor, a brother who has been in this ministry in ministry for a long time that I've seen as obstacles of peace that the devil likes to throw at us. 
Now here's just a couple. One, making a big deal about nothing. Making a big deal about nothing. My dad used to have a saying, don't sweat the small stuff. And if you back up far enough, everything is small. Right? He had this saying, if you don't sweat the small stuff. And if you back up far enough, if you back up and get a big enough picture of something, everything is small. Now this is, don't make a big deal about small things. Anything that's small, don't make a big deal about it. The adversary does that. Consider in 1 Peter 5, 8 that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking those who he can devour. We don't have time to expo- exposition that entire uh, text this morning, but just think for a moment about the lion and how lions hunt. They pick off the weakest and the, and the, the sick, the lame. They pick off the ones at the back. Lions are notoriously lazy. They sleep for 20 hours a day. That's why when you go to the zoo, they're always asleep. Except at noon, in the middle of the day when they're feeding them, or like in the morning rather. It's about 10 o'clock. They'll feed them here in Houston. They'll feed them in the middle of the day, and then they're awake. And they play for about five minutes and go back to sleep. They eat their food and go back to sleep. Lions are notoriously lazy creatures. Now, they're huge, and they're, they're mighty, and they're terrifying, but they are notoriously lazy. He prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking the weak, the separated, the distant. And what I'm telling you is that the weak and the separated and the distant make a big deal over nothing. When people are weak, or they're separated from the community, or they're distant from the community, you can be sure that the adversary is trying to get at them. So you need to double your prayer for them. You need to be attentive to when they show up. And you need to be aware. And I will profess just openly, sometimes they get caught and they get taken by the adversary. Even Paul had this in his ministry. He said, Demas has abandoned me for the cares of the world have overtaken him. He was weak and separated and distant and then he abandoned Paul in the ministry. Abandonment, from, for Paul to say somebody abandoned him is a big deal. So he gets abandoned. He knows what that feels like. Second, the adversary. Uh, we are told when dealing with the adversary to put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. And just one of the fun things you can do in there is, is mark out why you put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God because of things like schemes of the devil. Their schemes, their lies and deceit, schemes, their plans. The devil makes plans to get at you. He makes plans to get at you. He makes plans to try and thwart your work. He, he has schemes and tricks and lies and subterfuge and deceit. He's been disarmed. Oh, Christ disarmed all the enemies, all the enemies in spiritual places. He disarmed them at the cross. But what does he do now? He lies and he deceives and that's all he can do. So all he can do is lie. And so we put on the armor to fight off schemes of the devil, wrestlings of the devil. Wrestlings is used in there. Evil times. We fight off evil times with the armor of God and we fight off the flaming darts of the devil with this. We fight off the flaming darts. In John 8, 44, we are told that he lies and he is the father of lies. That's how he exists so we can see that we need caution to identify and discern where lies are 
where lies are. If you want to know where the devil's at work, you want to know where the adversary's at work, just look for the lie. Just look for the lie, and you'll find it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, his aim is to keep you from seeing the light. So I want you to think about all those put together. This is a caution. When you are separate from community and faith, that's when you're going to be struck most. When you are separate from the community and the body of the church, that's when you're going to be struck the most. You're going to be, you're going to be attacked with uh, making big deals out of little things. Big deals out of little things. If you ask yourself the question, what does this have to do with eternity, and you can't answer it, you're making a big deal out of something. It may not be the exact issue that you're thinking of in the moment. It may be something else over here that you're making a big deal about. But whatever it is, it's caused you to make a big deal about nothing. Whatever it is, it's caused you to make a big deal about nothing. And so you need to be cautious here. This is part of being at peace. If you are giving in to lies, then you are making a big deal about nothing. You're following the suit of the adversary. You're not trying to be at peace. So when you start to say things that aren't true or speak in generalities, those are two key things that show you that you're lying. One, things that you cannot verify. And two, things that are generalities. I'll give you an example of generalities. They say... Everybody thinks, right? Those are generalities. Remember that if you boil those down, you'll often find that it's Susie from down the street who thinks this. Often somebody not even involved that they haven't spoken to and they think that they think that because they're busy making a big deal about nothing. Well, she looked at me this way one week. You're like, you mean that like she did this? She did, maybe she has allergies. Give the benefit of the doubt to people. All this said, peace. We strive for peace. And I wanted to give you those cautions. First, how do we, how do we be at peace? Speech, service, and thoughts. And then warn you against lazy and separation and, and distance and weakness. All those things are dangerous. Making a big deal about nothing. That's what the adversary does. Embracing life. Those are ways to ruin peace. But one thing that is true about peace and peace in the body is that peace is not safe. Peace is not safe. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way, and I think it's great. There is no way to peace along the way of safety. For peace must be dared. It is itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. Peace means giving oneself completely to God and to God's commands. Wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of nations in the hands of the Almighty God. Not trying to direct anything for selfish people. Battles are won not with weapons, but with God. They are won when the way leads to the cross, which is not safe. If you want peace, you must abandon Safety. If you want peace with each other, you have to abandon safety. And you know this as well as I do. You have to be able to confess things and be vulnerable. You have to be willing to be broken. You have to be willing to have those moments when somebody looks at you and goes, how are you doing? And you just break down and it's super awkward. 
And you're going, I just want to leave. And everybody's like, hey, look, we got you. We understand. That's peace. Peace doesn't come when you're guarded. Peace doesn't come with safety. So we want peace. Finally, before we dive in, I know I'm taking a while to get to these points, but before we dive in to verses 14 and 15, peace is pursued in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. You are to pursue peace. Peace takes discipline and diligence. In 2 Peter 3, verse 14, you are to be disciplined and diligent to strive for peace. Peace takes wrestling with one another. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, you're to wrestle for unity, wrestle for peace, to struggle with one another for peace. I love that, that you're supposed to fight with each other for peace. You're supposed to strive with one another for peace. How is peace with God attained in the Old Testament? What image are we given with, the, with Jacob? He is never at peace until he wrestles with God and has his hip broken. That's not a safe thing. He limps for the rest of his life. He's never at peace with God until he's broken. So we have peace with God when we wrestle with him. When we lay down and wrestle with him. We have peace Uh, Peace is when Christ reigns in your hearts, when Christ is king and you are not. Peace reigns when Christ reigns in your heart in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And peace is a marker of who we are as Christians. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace, who work hard to be at peace. That's who Christians are. It's, what, it's one of the things that marks us. Our love for one another and our remarkable peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding, according to Philippians. The peace that surpasses all understanding. That God will crush Satan underneath your feet in Romans 16. That you have peace that overcomes the entire world. It's one of the markers of our life. So you are to be at peace. And... To be at peace, how? Among yourselves. Among yourselves. The the Bible is not confused. You are not going to be at peace with the world. That's not going to happen. The world is going to be in chaos. You are supposed to be the eye in the storm. You are. We are. Supposed to be the eye in the storm. And yes, there are times in your life when you are going to need the community of faith to be that eye for you. But we trade off when we do that kind of thing. We trade off as a community of faith. Sometimes you're the eye. Sometimes I'm the eye. But we are the eye in the storm. We are the place of peace. We are the people of peace. The world is not going to bring you peace. In fact, we're promised the opposite. We're promised rejection from the world. The world is promised. Jesus promises in, in John 15, 18 through 25, he goes on this big exposition about how in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The world is still going to give you trouble. They are not going to like you. You're not going to be comfortable around the world. The world, you will have trouble. So, we have these 
four areas of people that we deal with here. Leaders, which we talked about last week, respect and esteem your leaders for their labor, their earned labor and love. And this week, we're going to talk about dealing with lazy, tired, and weak people. That's one subset of people. Lazy, tired, and weak. And then we're going to deal with evil, the wicked, people who do evil. So let's dive in. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We urge you, brothers, first the word urge, as we've talked about before, is the idea of calling alongside somebody. So going to get somebody and say, I urge you, like I'm coming alongside you to tell you to do this. But, but get the image. The image is not from the back, way back in the back going, I urge you, like I'm holding a whip, like you go forward. And it's not from the front, dragging them behind you. It's from the side. They're, Urging is to call alongside. So he urges you as a brother. I love this. Thessalonians is utterly absent of hierarchy. The Thessalonian church, there's no positions mentioned. No pastors, no deacons. It's just brothers and sisters in Christ striving with all that they are to be Christian. And here he says, we urge you, we come alongside you, brothers, to, to do this. Now, the, the, the rule is that if you have anything that you want to call somebody to, you have to be willing to get into it with them. They may not let you get into it with them. They may say, I just need some passive encouragement. But you have to be willing to walk through it with them. So you want to call somebody to read through the Bible, you'd better be willing to read through the Bible yourself too. You want to call somebody to love their neighbor well, you better model it and do it as well. You want to call somebody to overcome a particular thing that you see in their life, you better be willing to show up and meet with them when they need help doing it. You, you urge by calling alongside the brother, by going alongside the brother. This is a family matter. And then look at what he says. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. The first one here is lazy people. Idle is lazy people, people who don't do the work. And this is an intentional laziness. The word idle can be disordered or undisciplined. There's no room for sloth in the Christian church. There isn't. There's no room for sloth in the Christian community. Spiritual laziness will drag the entire body into discontentment and a lack of peace. Spiritual laziness will drag the entire body into discontentment and a lack of peace. Why do you think we see this in so many American churches? Because somewhere in the 80s, I guess, according to church history, somewhere in the 80s, we started consuming more than we started doing more than we started discipline. Somewhere in there, I don't know exactly when it happened and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but at some point we started consuming and because technology got better and teachers got better and our access to material got better, then when the internet hit, oh goodness, you can stay home and do absolutely nothing and have a theology degree. 
and then go on Facebook and prove it. You can do this easily nowadays. You don't even have to actually know Jesus. You can just defend the theology by looking it up online and then cut and paste. Right? This is awful. And yet it's also idle and lazy. The human heart and the human brain are not suited to idleness and laziness. We were designed to labor to know the Lord. We were made to cultivate a garden to make the world more beautiful, but also to walk with Him and know Him. That's why you were made. You were made to be the lesser lights of the night. That Christ would shine in the day and you would reflect Him in the dark. That you'd be the lesser lights. When we have sloth or laziness or idleness among us, it will drag the entire community down. So admonish the idle. Admonish them, encourage them, tell them to move, to to do something. These are people who are purposely lazy. I want to be clear. When Paul is referring to the idol here, he's referring to people who are purposefully lazy. They are mooches. They are lazy. They don't do anything. So you go to them, you say, come on, let's, we're going to do this together. We're going to do this. And when they go, I, you know, I'd just rather you'd say, no. We are going to, I'm going to do this with you. Come on. Let's do this together. Run with me. Work with me. Pick up a hammer and start building with me. That's what we do. We admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. These people are purposefully lazy. People who can, and they need, they, they need people who can call them on their laziness. They're people who can encourage but won't. They're lazy. Now, in my experience, these are often Christians who will not serve unless they receive some sort of benefit. Often these are Christians who will not serve unless they receive some sort of benefit. They're people who won't serve unless they're getting paid or there's some future uh, benefit or reward they're going to receive. These are not good things. These are lazy people. That's a lazy attitude. Even if they want to, like, even if they'll do all the work, if you pay them, they'll do all the work and they'll, they'll go 110%. That, that means they're idle. The best kind of leaders are those people who were leaders without the prestige. We said it last week. If you want to be an elder, eld. It's my father-in-law's quote. If you want to be an elder, eld. If you want to be a deacon, deek. Right? Just do the work. Get to work. If you do it long enough, somebody's going to go, hey, he'd make a good elder. And they'll put you in charge. Or they won't, but you're still doing it. Function over, over position. Now, what does admonishing look like? Admonishing looks like this. You open scripture and you say, did you know it says this? Did you know it says this? Admonishing looks like sitting across from somebody and going, hey, I see you're struggling with this. Can I, how can I help you overcome that? Like, how can we move forward 
with this. Admonishing looks like sitting down and opening the Bible with one another or living the Bible out with one another so that you are engaging each other in Scripture and thereby being propelled to be gospel ministers. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. So the first group that he, that he in this try in this three mentioned here, the idol, and then the second group is faint-hearted. Faint-hearted. Some people aren't lazy. Some people aren't lazy. Not everyone is idle. Some people are just tired. Some people are just worn out. And we need to bear with each other. We need to bear each other's burdens. Look at this next group. He says, admonish the idol. And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted, or literally, small of soul. Encourage the small of soul, the faint-hearted, the one who, whose soul has shrunken to, to a tiny, like they're just barely hanging on, the, the exhausted person, the tired one. Encourage the tired one. Oh, I despise admonishing the idol. They, that's a trial, and it's hard to do. And it's uncomfortable, and the idol frequently don't want to be admonished. But I love encouraging faint-hearted people. Faint-hearted people are not intentionally lazy or slothful. They're just tired. And I can bear that burden. I can share with that. I'm confessing a weakness, by the way, in saying that. I'm not, I'm not giving you something to follow there. We need to admonish the idol and we need to empower ourselves to admonish the idol. But a, a confession, a weakness for me is if you're faint-hearted, I got you. I understand what it's like to be tired. I know that. I can encourage that. If you're lazy, I'm mad. I'm, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with lazy. But faint-hearted, I got. Like, I understand. That's broken people. And broken people get faint-hearted. And that's what Paul's saying here. Like, this, this is faint-hearted people. Encourage the faint-hearted, the small in soul. In Galatians 6.2, you're told to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. John Piper has an observation where he says, when you are dealing with the faint-hearted, you are trying to enlarge the heart of someone. It means literally small of soul. Enlarge, enlarge their soul. And how is that done? How is that done all throughout Scripture? The way that the soul is enlarged is through the Word of God. That's the way the soul is enlarged. You give them the Word of God. You, you show it to them. You don't just say it to them. You don't just read it to them. You show it to them. You use your words and your hands. You show it to them. It's no good to tell somebody, Scripture says... And then go do the opposite yourself. No, you say scripture says and you urge, you come alongside the brother. You come alongside them and you go, let's do it. Let's do it together. You ask each other convicting accountability questions. You deal with each other directly. You speak what is true. You, you lift up the faint hearted. You encourage them. So encourage those who are small of faith with your study of the word and you're living it out. And then we got the third one here. Help the weak or the sick. Help the weak or the sick, the broken brother, the one that is, that is weak and sick and you see it. Now the term for ill here or the idea of 
illness in a believer here because he's talking about brothers here. And the idea is that this is somebody who is at the back of the pack and they are, they are sick. They can't do it. They lack the faculty to do it. And you are to help them. So you've got lazy people who could but won't. You've got faint-hearted people who would like to but are tired. And then you've got the weak who would love to but can't. Literally can't. And they need extra attention. The, the idea for help here is to lift someone up. To hold up, literally, to hold up against yourself. To crutch them. Is what the idea means. So he says, be a crutch to them. They literally cannot do it. It's not a figure of speech. They can't. They're incapable. They don't have the ability to do it. So crutch them. Lift them up and, and prop them up on yourself. Now, I hope, you, I hope you hear the visual image of how exhausting that can be in the faith. That's exhausting. That's why we need each other. Because sometimes crutching people is going to make you pretty faint-hearted. And you need the one who's going to admonish you not to be lazy to help you up when you're weak. And sometimes you're going to be the one who has all the strength in the world and everyone else is falling down around you. And sometimes you're going to be the one who is utterly broken. And you need the community to lift you up. So you can't urge brothers that you're not around. You can't urge brothers that you're not around. It requires some act, action on your part. Faith and community requires some reaching out and some touching each other and some being a part of one another. So Paul says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Lift up or crutch the weak or sick or those who are without strength. Some people are not able. They are broken, as many of us were. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says, We must help the weak. And then reminds you, it is better to give than it is to receive. That's in the Bible. We must help the weak. It is better to give than it is to receive. And then this last statement here dealing with each other he says be patient with all of them i'm so glad he threw that in there because honestly it's really easy to lose your patience with idle people faint-hearted people and weak people if everybody around you is always that way which we often are if everybody around you is always that way which we often are you're going to get tired and you're going to get impatient and you're going to say things like, Lord, I just wish that you bring somebody I don't have to help right now. And God's going to go, well, but everybody's helping you too. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to get impatient. And he reminds you, be patient with one another. Be patient with everybody. All of these people, be patient. It is a long walk with people in faith. We are so accustomed to short sprints of faith. We want the immediate, sudden appearance of thousands of people who all get baptized at once and then we're all good. That's what we want. But Christianity is not a sudden light switch. 
It's a long walk up a mountain of knowing who God is. And it's, it's beautiful and powerful and profound. But at times it's a trudge. I don't know if you've ever hiked up a mountain. But just imagine it with me. At first, you run toward There's a big open field. You see the whole mountain. It looks majestic and you run towards it. But at some point, while you're getting closer and closer to the mountain, the, the scenery gets a lot smaller and you're surrounded by trees and everything's up and there's rocks everywhere. And then there's that weird animal sound that you're not sure about. It's kind of scaring you. And then the, the, there's smells that are bizarre on the mountain and you're walking up the mountain and it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And as you go up the mountain, you see less and less of the beauty and majesty of the mountain. And you see more and more leaves, poison ivy and trees. And your friends are like, this is a great place to camp. And you're like, no. Get me a hotel room. Like you want to get up to the top of the mountain where there's a resort, you know, like something like that. And so, but you're climbing up this mountain and it doesn't always look beautiful. But it is. It is. It is incredible. And then when you think about the fact if you never climbed the mountain, you never would have seen these trees and these rocks and these, this beautiful landscape that the Lord has laid out before you. You never would have seen these things. But so much of it is a trudge uphill. That's the Christian life. We trudge uphill together carrying one another's burdens. And it's not always pretty. It's not always beautiful. You have to be patient. Because there are moments when the the scenery breaks and you can see again into the distance and you can see the majesty of the mountain. But often you're looking at the rocks right in front of you to climb up it. So we climb a mountain together. This is incredibly difficult. I want immediate results often, but patience, but patience. We must have patience for one another. Everyone runs at a different pace and we were told to run together. Everyone runs at a different pace and we were told to run together. We were told that we are to do this in community. So next in verse 15, we have dealing with the wicked or the evil. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one, to one another and to everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. This means literally watch out and make sure that you're not repaying evil for evil. I love that phrase because look at what it's assuming. It's assuming that people are going to do evil to you. It's assuming that people are going to do evil to you. And it's not qualified with outside the church, inside the church. People are going to behave poorly. People are going to treat you badly. People are going to do evil. And it's assuming that that's going to happen. And what he says is on you, not the other person. See to it that no one in our group is repaying evil for evil. Watch, watch out for this. Evil is going to be done. But when it's done, we respond in grace and mercy and love. We don't respond evil for evil. When somebody gossips about you, you don't gossip about them. Or you don't give in to gossip other places. When somebody says something or does something to you, when somebody abuses your, uh, your grace to them, when somebody takes advantage of you, you don't go take advantage of them. 
You respond in kindness and in love and goodness. When somebody slaps you on the cheek, you give them the other one. This is Christianity 101. You don't repay evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is not for you. If somebody really does evil, it's the Lord's job to repay them. We respond in grace. We respond in grace and mercy. This verse assumes that evil will be done to you. And his words regard our response. Evil is promised by Jesus. In this world you will have trouble. They have hated me. They will hate you. I tell you, this world will persecute you. Blessed are the persecuted for my sake. Blessed are those who suffer for me. Like that's what Jesus says of us. We are going to be treated evil. There's going to be evil that happens in this world. Sin exists and people in the church are sometimes very sinful. And so we are going to do evil but we don't have to respond in evil. We can call each other to repent and trust. We can call each other to grace and mercy. We can respond with the love of the cross of Jesus Christ. We can die for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not do evil in return, but rather in your speech, your mouth, your hands, in your service, and in your thoughts and in your hearts. Respond in love. Like we said, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, think on these things. Ephesians 4.29, Galatians 5.13-14, and Philippians 4.8 ought to be always before our minds as we deal with each other and with other people who are evil in their actions. And then look at what he says next. So don't repay evil for evil. And then he says, seek to, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always, not just when it's convenient or not just when you're able. Always seek to do good. Not just when it feels good. Always seek to do good. Seek, always seek to do good. This is an active thing. You're supposed to be actively seeking to do good to one another. This is a pursuit. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that peace is pursued. It's something you chase. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, 14, it's, it's a diligent, disciplined work to have peace. You are to pursue and to strive towards this. To seek to do good. Not merely lip service, but to do good. To, and to whom? To whom? Just apply this blanket to one another. So to everybody in the church and to everyone. I love how he just tacks that on. Because it's easy for me to do good to you. Let's be real honest. It's easy for me to do good to you. It's easy for you to do good to me because we're here together. But it's really difficult to do good to somebody who came for a while and is gone. And they're gone for whatever reason. It's really difficult to do good to Demas, who abandons Paul. It's really hard to do good to John Mark, who Paul felt like was too much of a a weakling to do ministry. And has that falling out. It's really hard for Paul to do good to Silas. I mean to Barnabas. After they have their argument in Acts. It's really hard for Paul to do good to him. But he's urging us to do good. And we're not, you're not perfect. You're not always going to get it right. But it's hard to do good to everyone. 
to actively seek to do good things to and for everyone is hard to do. And yet that's what we are called to do. So just by conclusion, let's for a moment think about how Jesus did all these things. How did Jesus do these things? One, he lived among them for three years. He lived among them. He walked among them. Jesus became man, put on skin. He walked. He was a baby. He had to learn to do it. He had to learn how to speak. He had to, he, everything that you experience in life, he experienced. He is, he was man. He lived among us. He lived among us. He walked with those of us, with those of little faith. How many times in the Bible does he look at his disciples and go, you still don't understand? How long have you been with me? John 14, he literally says that. Philip, how long have you walked with me and still you don't get it? He walked with those of little faith or the faint-hearted. He struggled with those. He struggled to carry those who were weak and lame and broken and un, uh, un, the people who did not merit a great deal of wonder and grace and power and prestige, he picked for himself 12 men who flunked Torah school. He picked for himself weak people that he propped up. And indeed, he holds me up. How many times does the Lord overlook my arrogance, pride, sin, selfishness, whatever it is, he overlooks it, forgives me and pushes me to know him more. How often does he bear with me as weak and sometimes even evil? He invites people to dinner. Jesus invites Pharisees who are going to kill him to dinner. And then Judas, who's literally going to sign his death warrant, to dinner and feasts with him. Jesus puts himself in the midst of people who absolutely hate him. And he loves them. Finally, he dies. He dies. So if encouraging the faint-hearted, admonishing the idle, and helping up the weak, and then not returning evil for evil is not for you, then Christianity isn't for you. Because our example, Jesus, who says, I have set an example before you, Paul, who says, follow my, follow my example as I follow Christ, this, this example is one who dies for the people who killed him. He dies for the people who killed him. They may have life. This is the life of living the cross. It's what gives us peace. It's what gives us peace. This is it. That we live with each other in community. And when evil people come, we don't return evil for evil, but we respond the way Jesus did. Oh, that we would respond the way he did, bringing our love and righteousness and laying it over people who absolutely absolutely despise us.